Okay, everybody, we're going to get started. Today, I would again like to welcome Dr. Joe Scheiber. Dr. Scheiber is Associate Professor of University of Florida. Um, he has started multiple emergency medicine and internal medicine um, training programs. Um, he is our first graduate of EMI here at Maryland um, and is currently the co-director of neuroscience ICU at uh, University of Florida in Jacksonville. So without further ado, welcome again, Joe. Yeah, thanks, Mike. You guys hear me okay? Good. All right. So this uh, uh, TBI update, so I'll cover a little bit of some general stuff in evaluation and management of TBIs. And then we'll go off a little bit forward into some of the current literature and see if there's any advances um, that we need to discuss. This, this is the reason why I think when I, in the next slide, when I talk about men, men to women, two to one TBI rates, because no one but a bunch of men would think about doing something like this, right? You see what they're doing. They're using, they're using a forklift to lift another forklift to then take appliances off a second tier. And these gentlemen are standing on the treads of this, right? Anyway, explanation for that two to one ratio. Okay, so anyway, here's our outline. I like talking a little bit about history of medicine as people probably know from some of my previous talks. We'll talk about the epidemiology, mechanisms, pathophys, a little bit of the features and treatment, and then as we said, finish up with the, liter the current literature. Anyone know who this is? Nobody? Phineas Gage, right, very good, right. Phineas Gage, he was one of the first medical uh, cases where we had someone who had a bad penetrating skull brain injury and we knew a little bit about what happened to him. So he was tamping down the, his job was on the railroad, he would set explosives and he would have a tamping rod that he would pack down the explosive before leaving and then having the charge go off and as he tamped it down he must have sparked it and so the tamping rod which was a big iron bar went through his face and out the top of his head and no one could believe that that's what occurred because he actually was there and was relatively functional. But uh, after he recovered, he did have some big personality changes. So that was one of the famous cases where they realized that, you know, he survived, that he blew out some of his frontal lobes. And so he went from being a relatively good, hardworking, temperate man to then being a wild, profane drinker. Um, who couldn't hold a job down any longer. So maybe he just realized that after a bar went through the top of his head, he didn't want to work for the railroad anymore. I'm not sure. But okay. So, by the way, 10,000 BC, there's evidence that we've found a lot of skulls that had trepanation done. This is one of them. So this was not a traumatic event. This was something that was intentionally done. And most of those patients, there's evidence of healing of the wounds. So they didn't actually die from the trepanation. So what they were doing, doing it for, we don't know whether they actually thought the person actually had a wound or had pressure in their head or they were trying to relieve evil spirits. We're not sure. But even from, from millennial ago, people actually survived actually what we would think today would be a, a burr hole or a decompression procedure. And then in the Iliad, which is the first recorded book, um, there's a lot of wounds being recorded. So it is believed that that's actually a, a historical document. Of all the wounds, the fatality rate of the head wounds was always fatal as compared to if someone had an arrow wound or a spear wound, other areas of the body. But the head wounds, penetrating head wounds, were undoubtedly fatal during that time period. All right. So number one cause of death in people less than 45. It's the leading cause of morbidity and, mortality, uh, morbidity and disability or brain injuries. The bimodal distribution, younger people, risk takers doing uh, dangerous things. And then the older age group, this is simply because of falls, um, falls from standing, um, falls off ladders, when people are older and doing things that they probably shouldn't be doing any longer. And as we said, two to one male to female ratio. But by the way, women's outcomes are better, and we'll talk a little bit about that in some of the current literature and why we believe that may be the case. So these are our blunt mechanisms versus our penetrating mechanisms. Um, sports recreation. My wife and I published some data about five years ago that looking at the database from Houston, um, if you were involved in a non-mechanized sport or recreation without firearms, that actually the mortality rate was zero. 
and your TBI rate was relatively low. So you step up all of your sports recreation if you start actually adding ATVs, um, you know, motorcycling, those type of things, off-roading, even though that's listed as sports or recreation, it's a very different thing as compared to what you think of, of roller skating, you know, team sports, as long as you don't involve firearms or motorized vehicles. So relatively safe without those complicating factors. So the language that we use, so the primary injury is what occurs at the time of the impact. Something hitting your head or your head decelerating and hitting an object, the primary injury occurs. It's immediate, it's typically irreversible. Um, those are our examples. And just so you also know the language, intraaxial versus extraaxial. The extraaxial, so when, when radiology says there's extraaxial blood, that's what you want to be worried about, things that need to be decompressed, epidural, subdural, as compared to intraaxial, parenchymal contusions, subarachnoid hemorrhage, diffuse axonal injuries. So if that's the primary injury, everything else is the secondary injury, and we'll talk about that and why that is our goal in the ICU of actually minimizing secondary injury. So this is just a schematic talking about those four typical types of injuries and where they're occurring in relation to the anatomical structures. So the secondary injury, as we said, has many different causes, and that is what our goal is in the ICU to provide as scrupulous care as possible. So hypoxia, hypotension, hyperthermia, hyponatremia. Most people worry about hyperglycemia, but you always have to be concerned about hypoglycemia because, again, the brain needs two things at all times. It needs blood to be delivering oxygen and glucose. So as much as we worried about having elevated glucoses and recovering brain injuries, whether that's traumatic, post-stroke, post-arrest, hypoglycemia is probably more devastating. As also it's been shown in, in some relatively robust data from post-arrest that there may actually be a, an increased gradient from serum to CSF glucose in a recovering brain. So in trauma, you also would be suspicious that if someone's serum glucose was 70 or 75, their actually CSF glucose could be lower than that, may actually be below the threshold for neuroglycopenia. So in recovering post-arrest patients, we typically try to keep their glucoses more like 80 to 150 and do not try to have them on the lower end at any point in time. So for TBI patients, I would also likely want to consider that is not having them so tightly controlled that a serum could be 70 or 65 because their CSF would undoubtedly be lower. Progressive hemorrhage, edema, infection. So those are the things that we're trying to prevent or minimize. So anyway, Treatment for the primary is just prevention, and then everything else is secondary is what now we're, we're working on. So I'll kind of quickly go through this. This is probably a review for most, uh, most people in the room. So epidurals, typically arterial source, middle mingeal. There can be some from diploic bone, especially in younger people, that bone can be very vascular. So even without a meningeal artery, they actually can develop a, a epidural arterial bleed. It's convex, also known as lens-shaped. It's bound by the sutures. The dura is anchored, and think about it as welding points at the suture lines. So it typically will not cross that. But the good news is that the majority of epidurals are a skull injury, not necessarily a brain injury. You may develop secondary brain injury if this is expanding, and compressing, and causing a potential herniation syndrome. But that used to be a trick question that Dr. Gens used to love to ask. He used to say, if you had to have a brain injury, which one would you want to have? And the trick to it is that if you happen to be across the street from a hospital, you'd want to have an epidural because that's not really a brain injury. It's a skull injury. And once that's decompressed, you have an excellent chance of doing well. If you happen to be in the wilderness somewhere in extreme uh, austere environment, you would not want to have this because that would often lead to you dying, while the subdural, which likely has an underlying brain injury associated with it, is slower, grow slower accumulating, and so you may have a better chance of eventually getting decompressed. So a tricky question at Dr. Gins, right? So subdural, 
Again, bridging veins, venous sinuses is typically the source. It's crescentic shaped. It's bound by the fox, meaning it will not cross the midline. You can have bilateral subdurals, but it actually is two separate injuries. It is not one injury crossing the midline. Things that can be more difficult to see, again, if it's within 24 to 48 hours, it may be more isodense, may not necessarily be hypodense yet. If the patient is critically anemic already, the blood that they're bleeding may also not be very hyper, hyper intense. If the person's hemoglobin is seven, that blood may actually be isodense with brain tissue also and make it more difficult to, to evaluate. Again, nice, nice example of a hemispheric subdural. Subarachnoid is the most common traumatic injury. Fills in the cerebrospinal fluid face, um, spaces, so within the uh, sulci uh, or within the, uh, within the ventricles. But also be aware of the spontaneous subarachnoid, right? Several times per year this occurs. Somebody actually has a sudden event. They actually have rupture of a barrier they have loss of consciousness. If they were driving, that may mean they actually have a single vehicle NVC. If they were standing, they fall to the ground. So then what's occurred? Now they have some marks of injury on them or their vehicle went off the road and they're brought in with a massive subarachnoid and potentially other injuries. So you it takes a lot of, of fact finding to actually be able to get to the bottom of it sometimes and, and use good clinical judgment because the treatment for a spontaneous subarachnoid is drastically different and requires typically control of that aneurysm, whether by coiling or isolation clipping. And if you assume that it's just a traumatic injury and you do not do anything about it, that person will re-bleed and will very likely decline. So it's, it's, um, it's common and you need to be on the lookout for it because undoubtedly you will see it. Literally Monday, we had a patient who, again, the story is a little bit more straightforward. She was older, she was 83, she was standing in line at Home Depot, and she was witness to just fall from standing, hit the ground, didn't trip, nothing else happened, and she had a brain full of blood, subarachnoid blood, and a massive intracerebral hematoma that I guarantee, not at cortical, it was subcortical, it was a spontaneous hemorrhage. She lost consciousness, fell and hit the ground, and then had a small scalp. Uh, abrasion, not even a hematoma, no skull fracture, and had a devastated GCS and families said they don't want anything further and they withdrew care. But I've had many younger patients at a similar event and we made the diagnosis and then went on to getting isolation of their, of their aneurysm. Cerebral contusions, also common, typically associated with other injuries like this patient here. We see frontal contusions. We also see associated subdural as well as some subarachnoid blood. Again, it's frontal temporal, temporal occipital areas where the brain will slosh and bump into bony prominences of the skull, which is where the, the contusions take place. You can also have coup and then contra coup. So if they fall and decelerate forward, hit their forehead, they may actually have evidence of, of, again, scalp contusion, bony fractures, contusions, and they may actually then have occipital contracoup where the brain then sloshes backwards and bumps again the posterior occiput. And then DAI, which is what we typically associate with severe deceleration injuries. It's a shear injury, deep white matter tracts then basically are separated from, uh, from the um, from the gray matter and the cortices. Why is that? There's different densities between those two types of tissue, and so the rotational, typically deceleration, then basically just tears and separates them. May not be visible on the CT scanner. What you may see is small punctate hemorrhages that you think, geez, that's actually kind of small to be isolated contusions, but you may see several isolated small, um, small hemorrhages. On MRI, it's much more visible. As they progress, the axons degenerate. Wallerian degeneration, for any of the medical students that are still here, you may remember that. If the axon separates from the neuron, that's what occurs. And then the white matter tracks then retract. And then you have diffuse atrophy of your cortex. Then you get ex vacuo, increased size of your ventricles to fill in for that loss of brain tissue. And here's an MRI showing basically some of these post hemorrhages now that actually there's hypodense lesions, again, at gray-white junctions, 
and down in the brain stem as long as the as well as along midline. And so there is grading of DAI, which can come into play at helping with the prognosis of the patients. It's been around first described by Adams, three grades, although I actually have only been using it for probably about the last five to 10 years. So even though it's been around for a while, it may not have becoming, become more clinically used. And again, here's two different versions of an MR, a T2, and then a diffusion gradient where we see these lesions here and here lower down. And so the gradings one, two, and three, these are at the cortex at the white matter interface. Grade two is typically midline along the corpus callosum. Grade three involves the brain stem as well as one and two. Patients with grade ones may do fine. Further down along you go though, less likely to be without deficits in grade three typically are patients that are gonna be persistent vegetative state because if your brain stem is involved, you're not typically able to be awake. So I often will use this to then have a meaningful discussion with family members over goals of care. If I can tell them that he has grade three DAI, it's very unlikely that they're gonna progress from where they currently are, which typically is gonna be a GCS of a four or five at best. All right, so ICP management. Monroe Kelly hypothesis, which means your skull encases, it's a rigid environment that it's gonna enclose the brain, blood, and CSF. If you add to it with a mass lesion of trauma, then that volume taking up of the mass lesion must actually displace one of these other three or else there will be an increase in pressure. So intracranial volume can only accommodate about an extra 100 mLs. And what is occurring if you're adding 100 mLs of, of blood to the brain is typically that first 100 mLs is CSF leaving the, uh, the, the CSF uh, space and the ventricular space. After that, you have an increase in pressure. And this same curve you can apply to virtually every comp compartment of the body. Your pericardial space, same thing. Your pleural space, your peritoneal space. There's only a fixed amount of volume that you can occur before you hit this steep slope and any extra increase in volume increases pressure. So once this would be this flat part would be that 100 cc's that we're talking about. After you add anything more to that, so say you have an epidural that's at 90 cc's, that person may be still in the quote lucid interval, right? They had a bad deceleration, they fractured their skull, they were briefly unconscious, now the person is awake and talking to you and saying I got a terrible headache. Once that 90 ml epidural continues to grow and you hit this steep part of the curve, as it increases, pressure is increasing. Now that epidural is compressing healthy areas of brain tissue, and the person may at that point then go unconscious again and begin actually having some posturing. So that is why you have, after a sudden event like an epidural, you do have, potentially, you have this lucid interval. The other curve that's helpful to think about is cerebral autoregulation which cerebral blood flow is able to maintain relatively stable over a relatively large gradient of cerebral perfusion pressures. So your blood pressure can vary by a huge amount and you have intact autoreactivity of your vasculature to maintain cerebral blood flow at a very stable amount. Now, if your blood pressure goes above, and that's typically maps that are actually above 160 to 170. So it takes a lot to develop a hypertensive urgency and develop, develop cerebral edema and breakdown of your blood-brain barrier, as well as it takes a, a relatively precipitous drop-off for someone to begin hypoperfusing their brain. Now, the caveat to this is this requires intact vasculature and a healthy brain. When you actually have an injured brain, you're not able to maintain nearly as good um, autoregulation. So that is why you often have to be more generous maintaining a map instead of 65 or even 60, which would be where that would be getting on that steep part of the curve. We often wanna have maps that are actually slightly more generous in a recovering brain, recovering after TBI, after stroke, after cardiac arrest because of the fact that this may not be fully regulated. So there are no predictable signs of having an elevated ICP. 
by physical exam. You can't just say, I evaluated this patient and I believe they have an elevated ICP. That is why there's some pretty strong indicators saying you need a monitor, and that would be GCS less than eight, having abnormalities on a CT, age greater than 40, which is considered old in the trauma population, or having systolic blood pressures less than 90. Those are indicators that this patient needs a monitor so that you can say, do they have high ICP? Do we need to treat them? The only thing that I think we may have talked about this once before in here, that may be getting improvements of saying at the bedside, can I non-invasively evaluate somebody's ICP? Maybe, do I have an idea? I hear a general murmur. This may be actually doing ocular ultrasound, looking at optic nerve sheath diameter. I, I'm, I don't know enough about it currently to say how well it's been validated, but I do know that people are getting relatively good with it and they're, they're using it. And I think we may see that that may be something that we can offer in patients that we don't necessarily want to have an invasive monitor in yet to say how reliable it is at determining whether they actually have normal, you know, or not. So our ICPs in the room are all single digits. You call for sneeze, it may go up higher, but for br very brief time periods, it's not a problem. If it goes over 20, but for, for brief time periods, if it stays sustained over 20, that reduces cerebral perfusion and secondary injuries. And over 40 is considered to be severe and life-threatening and needs to have something done about it immediately. So I think this is just reiterating. So for head injuries, it's still ABC. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation always takes precedence because as we said, secondary injury, which is hypotension, hypoxemia, those things that are, will occur if you haven't actually identified other life threats and resuscitated them. Inadequate resuscitation certainly increases the risk of secondary injury. And this is a pretty, pretty landmark study that they showed that having a single episode of hypotension, even pre-hospital, increases that patient's mortality rate by virtually dub doubling it. So we always want to say we want to maintain a good blood pressure. And this is always taken into an account even when people talk about permissive hypotension or, hypo, quote, hypotensive resuscitation, someone that has penetrating injuries, and you're saying, well, I don't necessarily want to resuscitate that person so fully until I have control of hemorrhage. Well, if you're suspected to have a severe TBI, that is the one caveat to those recommendations is that you may still need to maintain a close to normal blood pressure so that you do not necessarily in, uh, progress them from their, from their TBI. All right, we use GCS still. It's a relatively blunt tool, but it's been shown over decades to be valuable for us to talk to each other about uh, someone's scoring system and to have it as some type of prediction for their future. So mild, moderate, severe, but just recall that there are many things that can actually artificially lower your ability to have an accurate GCS. So if someone is very drunk, someone's alcohol level comes back at 450, GCS, unless they're really a professional, their GCS is going to be three. They're going to be terrible, right? person's going to be intubated and needing to have management of their airway for some time period. Hypoglycemia, or again, someone's blood pressure, stock blood pressure is 50 because of severe hemorrhagic shock. No brain injury, but they could still have a GCS that's three. That's not predictive at all because of the fact that while someone is in that severe degree of shock, you cannot use it to, to, uh, to use it for uh, an evaluation. And then, by the way, 15 may not necessarily be normal either, right? Someone who follows commands, talking coherently, um, and has eyes open, but when they ask you, again, um, five minutes later, the same three questions that they already asked you, you know that they're actually am amnestic, they're not actually able to continue forming new information. That person has a brain injury. They may not necessarily have a severe brain injury, but they still have a brain injury. So 15 is not necessarily normal. And a lot of times, we see someone, we apply our scale, family members come in to see the patient, they step out and they say, what's wrong with my husband? And you're like, what? And they say, well, this is, this is not him. That's when you realize that that 15 is not necessarily, quote, normal. Um, there's lots of scoring systems for who gets CT scans. In general, we already have a biased population here because to get brought to the trauma center, we clearly know that they've already sustained mechanism of injury that's already brought them to their attention requiring a, uh, a trauma uh, 
trauma alert, so to speak. So there's many other things, though, that you can use to say, hey, other things that are high risk that would warrant imaging. Why do we do head CT instead of MRI? Well, again, it's fast. It shows the things that we're interested up front very, very well. Blood and edema, it shows fractures, it shows ventricular system. Ischemia is show, shows well, but only after a certain time period. So early on, we are gonna miss areas of ischemic if someone has secondary injuries. And again, it shows air. So the things that we wanna know for trauma, it does show very well, which is why CT is still our first study of choice. We kind of already went through this already. So our, in general, our management, head of bed elevated, if there's no other contraindication to it, is very helpful for reducing ICP, keeping the neck straight so that venous outflow is not obstructed by the person turning their head. It can be a very interesting thing when someone has a monitor in place and you see them with their head turning or their head flexing to see the degree that their ICPs go up by something as simple as blocking venous outflow. Again, avoiding, as we said, hypotension, hypoxia, hyperthermia, hypoglycemia, maintaining normal carby. A lot of people remember, though, the 35 to 40. Much, what's more important is that you want to actually maintain a normal pH. So someone who's actually got chronic respiratory acidosis with compensation, if their baseline PCO2 is 60, you're not going to make their PCO2 35, because if you did, their pH would be 7.7 or 7.8. So it's maintaining PCO2 for a normal pH. And a lot of times neurosurgery was still actually right on, right on their recommendations. And, you know, oh, need to have CO2 lowered. And I'm like, their pH is 7.48 currently. I'm not gonna lower them anymore, make them more alkalotic. Light sedation is very helpful for actually helping pain control, which these patients will have, which will elevate ICP. Seizure prophylaxis is strongly indicated for one week for subdural, ICH, and subarachnoid. It's less strongly required for epidural hematomas because, as we said, the majority of those patients do not have associated brain injury. This is kind of a, a general accepted that you typically will hold off for pro prophylaxis of DVT for at least 48 to 72 hours until you know that the person's clinically stable if they had got a decompression that they've not reaccumulated blood and it makes sense although you can work with your local colleagues to come up with some patients that may be started earlier okay so then how do we actually evaluate or guarantee that we're doing the right thing for the resuscitation of their brain so monitoring perfusion and what's called multi-modality monitoring is typically the, the best accepted way um, this can involve obviously saying I want my blood pressure to be invasively monitored and maintaining, as we said, 75 to 80, trying to keep their CVP in a normal range. Makes sense to say I want their hemoglobin to be 8, although we will say, oh, you know, in the ICU we can let it go down to 7. If your goal is resuscitating a brain, as we said, the brain needs to have blood flow under pressure to deliver oxygen and glucose. So I typically think it's very prudent and reasonable to say my goal would be eight. It's typically what we do post-acute cerebrovascular ischemia or cardiovascular ischemia. So if someone's had a STEMI or had an acute stroke, we keep it at eight, and I believe for TBI, it's warranted also. Um, and then keeping their PaO2 normal also, since as I said, we need to have oxygen delivery. You may need to actually do fluid boluses to push up their pressure and their CVP for cardiac output to keep this up. You may need to use vasoactive medications. Your goal, though, is to, again, help perfusion, not just blood pressure. So we typically use balance vasopressors and not necessarily vasopressin by itself or, or um, phenylephrine, neosinephrine by itself. If you're monitoring uh, PbO2, then you want to keep it greater than 20. If you're using central jugular venous pressure, you want to actually have that above 60. And, and this is not used as much as it used to be. When I was in training here in the 90s, everyone actually had retrograde IJ catheters up in their, up in their jugular bulb, and you were measuring venous oxygen, basically extraction. How much blood was that brain extracting? 
just as we measure SCVO2 for a resuscitation of sepsis, if you're extracting 20% and you're, and you're returning um, venous oxygen is 80%, then you can be relatively assured that you're delivering enough oxygen to the brain that it's not extracting below a certain value. If you're below 60%, then you're extracting pretty maximally and you may not actually be supplying enough oxygen to that healing brain. So it is another goal-directed point that you can use. Um, I have not, and again, I've used all of these methods. The only method I am not quite as familiar with because I have not used is microdialysis catheters where you actually measure, again, instead of saying I'm measuring the pressure or I'm measuring the oxygen um, in the brain tissue or I'm measuring the oxygen extraction, this you're measuring the lactate pyruvate ratio because again, if you're thinking I'm not supplying enough oxygen, brain tissue is switching to anaerobic, then your lactate content is gonna be higher than your ratio is gonna switch from, from a higher lactate to pyruvate. And then glutamate is a excitatory neurotransmitter. It's released also during inflammation or injury. And so that also will be elevated if the brain is suffering more. And so it can be used as a marker. Pretty much the gold standard for measuring ICPs is gonna be a, a ventricular catheter. It's most accurate. You can constantly re-zero it as well as it's therapeutic for draining of CSF. Intraparenchymal monitors, Camino, subdural, epidural monitors are much less accurate as well as are non-therapeutic. So we don't typically pick them as a, those as our choice. There are time periods, particularly in adolescence, where their ventricles are actually so small to begin with that neurosurgery may not feel comfortable that they can accur accurately get a catheter into their ventricular system. So when I manage adolescents, I'm, uh, it is more common for me to actually have intraparenchymal Camino monitors in, in that age group. I do, ma I do manage children. I don't like it, but we do. Our, our hospital at UF is a adult and pediatric center. So the real small kids, we actually try to get across town to um, Nemours, the, the children's hospital in town, but they are not a designated trauma center. So their children are still brought to us and they stay with us for a time period. They typically get their monitoring with us. And after a time period, we're able to segue the younger children over to them. So I, I do not like it. So again, CPP, MAP minus ICP. That's why we typically want to have our CPPs on the more generous side and not let them dip below 60 or certainly below 55 has been associated with worse outcomes. As we said, we're going to use fluid challenges or pressors to push up our CPP. The problem you get is when you actually have a patient that is on the very, very non-compliant part of their, of their uh, intra-brain, uh, intra intraparenchymal compliance curve, that if their CPP is, say, 55, and their ICP is 20, and you're trying to do as you can to lower their ICP, but trying to push up their, their CPP, so you actually give a fluid challenge, put them on pressors, and as their maps go up, and you think that you're trying to raise your CPP, your ICP goes up at the same time. That is a situation where the more blood you're actually trying to supply to the brain, you're actually increasing their ICP. And that is basically a no-win situation. There isn't much other medically you can do to that patient except for decompress them. They have, you have to get their skull open. And that's when actually they have no other room to push out any other CSF. And any increased blood flow that you're giving them is actually making their brain, you know, again, increased volume, increasing the pressure. So when you see that, if you've done a fluid challenge, or you actually put them on a higher dose suppressor, you do a cardiac monitor and you see that your CVP is good, your cardiac output is good, and as your MAP goes up, your ICP goes up, that's what you're seeing, that more blood flow to the brain makes ICP higher. And you are stuck at that point. You really need your surgical colleagues to actually take the skull off at that point. So our tiers of management. So hyperosmolar therapy, again, after head of bed elevation, after mechanical ventilation for ideal PCO2 after late sedation. Osmolar therapy is the next line. Some people like to use mannitol because it can be given peripherally. It's a rapid bolus. It's usually a, a 0.5 to one gram per kilo. I do not like it because what typically happens is the patient gets it. It does have a good initial effect, 
but within a short time period, that person begins having a massive osmotic diuresis, and they will be negative several liters. And number one, I always hear the same thing, the person's going into DI, because look at their urine output. So it confuses the picture of that, which can occur in severe TBIs, but also you may actually have made that, made that person intravascularly depleted and potentially having a secondary brain injury. So I do not like using mannitol unless I'm totally handcuffed and I have to use it. I much prefer using hypertonic saline, which can be given, 3% can be given peripherally, if you need to. We typically do place central lines for it to be given ongoing, especially if you're gonna use 7.5 or 23.4, but it has the effects of, of, again, concentrating hyperosmolars to actually dehydrate, shrink the brain of edema, plus it expands the volume status, which helps the blood flow and, and has other beneficial effects on the brain. So I would recommend to be more comfortable in using hypertonic saline more than mannitol. And then obviously, as we said, EVD for ventricular drainage is the next tier of therapy. Just to briefly mention, we do not like using hyperventilation unless it's a bridge to getting that patient to decompression. So if the person has a sudden decline, they actually developed a new third nerve palsy, you're doing all these things simultaneously. You're giving them 3%. You're trying to actually maintain good blood pressure. You're getting that person to the OR as quickly as possible. It's reasonable then to actually say my goal would be to get a PCO2 down to 30. It is relatively rapid at causing a decrease in cerebral blood flow, but that is the mechanism of how it reduces ICP. So you do not want to be maintaining decreased cerebral blood flow for long. That is exactly the opposite of what we're doing in brain resuscitation, but for a short time period, it is reasonable to do while getting that patient into the operating room. Sedation, there's many different agents. They're reasonable. You try to be comfortable with some. Again, I typically think they need something for pain control because a brain injury is certainly going to be painful, especially if they have skull fractures or have had a decompression, and then something as a, quote, sedative. Paralytics, only if they're having mechanical ventilation dyssynchrony. Again, trying to make the ventilator match the patient is better than making the patient tolerate the ventilator. But there are time periods that despite what you're doing with the mechanical ventilation, you see that there's some dyssynchrony causing elevations of ICP. You may need to paralyze that patient during that time period. And then consider that they may have abdominal compartment syndrome. That the multiple compartment syndrome was described here about eight to 10 years ago, where abdominal compartment leading to thoracic compartment leading to to acute elevations of ICP. So these patients may not have abdominal injuries. It may not be a primary abdominal compartment, but due to their resuscitation, they may actually have developed secondary abdominal compartment. They may need to be decompressed because, again, venous blood cannot run up a gradient, up a pressure gradient. So if your thoracic pressure is, more, is elevated above your ICP, venous blood actually congests the brain, and thoracic pressure will be elevated if abdominal pressure is elevated. So it may be an up, a upstream um, phenomena. And then barbiturates for deeper sedation, we're actually trying to get them quote coma status, having their EEG and burst suppression are almost flat. Makes sense because if you've gotten to the point where you've tried to do everything you could, ICPs are still elevated, then one of the ways that it makes sense to say, I want to actually reduce their ICP by reducing cerebral blood flow is to reduce the demands of the brain. So under barbiturate coma, the brain is basically put into a state where it's basically almost non-functional. So its metabolic requirements are so minimal that then the cerebral blood flow can be minimal. You can't reduce cerebral blood flow without reducing the requirements of the brain or else you will induce secondary injury. So barbiturate coma makes rational sense. Again, steroids previously given have no role in the treatment of TBI, only cause worsening, worsened adverse events. Decompressive craniectomy is still indicated. Uh, it actually is associated with better outcomes if done early. Um, the, the pendulum has swung back and forth because it had a lot of, a lot of people enthusiastic about it. And then they said, well, the person survives, but they're non-functional. Again, if you do it too late, that is the case. So if you're going to consider it, consider it early on, and you may have better outcomes. We'll talk briefly at the end about hypothermia, but typically always avoid 
fever or, or hyperthermia in these patients. I'm going to skip over that just briefly is how, what you want to have done for uh, surgical therapy besides for decompression, but I think we'll skip that. And then now to finish up, recent literature. Okay. So people known about using hypothermia for TBIs back, again, now that's 70, 70 years ago. That was using more profound levels of hypothermia. So more recent literature in children, there was a large study in 2008, did not improve the CNS outcome and actually had increasing trends towards mortality. So in children, it's not recommended. These findings were actually similar to the studies that were done in 01 and repeated in 2011, that it did not, now this was prophylactic hypothermia. This was actually just saying, we we're gonna cool these patients as part of their, of their treatment was not helpful in actually increasing mortality. There was some, uh, this was a, in a study in China where they did selective brain cooling. So they did not actually induce to make the person's core temperature low. They actually just had these helmets outfitted that actually had cool circulating fluid to their head and neck. And they were showing that they could lower the brain temperature without necessarily lowering the systemic temperature. And at least, and this was a relatively small study, showed that it actually did improve their outcomes. But this has not really been widely embraced because it's not thought to be very applicable. How can you, you really, if you try to maintain brain temperature cooling for long, you end up getting systemic cooling. And then this recent study, 2015, where they did do it, quote, as a treatment. So if someone went beyond tier one for elevated ICP, so they all had mechanical ventilation, light sedation, but they had elevated ICP, one group went on to getting therapeutic hypothermia, again, mild 32 to 35. The other group was, was standard, typically then osmolar therapy. So the hypothermia group did give them control of ICP. The number of patients that needed decompression was lower, but the outcomes were worse. The neurologic outcomes in terms of who had severe Glasgow coma outscore scorings, as well as the mortality was worse in the hypothermia group. So I think it still reiterates that it may control the ICP to some degree, but it actually does not improve outcomes. So it is still currently not recommended as a, as a first tier, second tier, it's still a rescue therapy for refractory ICP. <clears throat> that being said, we want to maintain normothermia and, and avoid elevated temperatures at all points during their recovering time period. And again, that goes along for brain injury of any way, traumatic, post-arrest, post-stroke. So progesterone, as we said, there was a gender disparity that we did know that women of matched uh, severity of brain injuries, women did better than men. And so that's what got some of the investigators' attention to say it's gotta be a hormonal difference. So there was some animal models and then some small-scale human models that all showed, hey, progesterone appears to be what actually improves their mortality and disability. That was, in, that was a study in 2007 that was, in, that was actually, was prospective, was randomized, but was a small scale. And that reiterated what had been found as I said, in animal models already. Two studies though, in 2014, same, this was the same investigator and this was a different group, found no differences on mortality or neurologic outcomes. Now, one of the studies, you had to be enrolled within 24 hours and one study still within six hours and they called that early. I would not throw this out altogether because six hours, it still may be a time-dependent mechanism. Obviously, if you're a woman and you get injured, you already have progesterone in your brain, right? If you're a man and you get injured and they're going to administer progesterone, how quickly, six hours may be beyond that window of where the therapeutic effect may be. So I wouldn't necessarily throw this out as a potential therapy but right now, we have not seen it being proven yet. It may just be that it may need to be present closer to time zero. Erythropoietin. So it's been known to actually have neuroprotective effects. Pleiotropic, so it actually improves nerves, nerve functioning, neuron functioning, and to be protective, independent of its erythropoiesis. 
this uh, 2007 study was not just for TBIs, it was in multi-trauma patients. It included TBIs, but included all people that were severely multiply injured. And it showed that it increased survival independent of their actual hemoglobin value. So it wasn't that it decreased their need for transfusion by itself. It actually was shown that it improved outcomes. The one drawback was that it did have an increased rate of DVT-PE, so it may have been somewhat thrombogenic. A study in 2014 looking at it that was somewhat underpowered, though, did not show any improvement. And then a recent study in 2015 in Lancet for TBIs only, not multi-trauma, but for TBIs, there was a 5% difference in mortality. Now, that P was 0.07. So usually we want 0.05 to make it actually acceptable, but I think that there may be something to this. And again, I wouldn't throw out erythropoietin. And by the way, in this study, no changes in the rate of DVT-PE. So it's unclear how much this should scare us away from using it or not. So I wouldn't necessarily throw this out as a mechanism of something that we still may need to look into further as a neuroprotective effect. So again, just to mention this, there's not a single FDA-approved agent for neuroprotection, even though there's been more than 200 clinical trials. So we're still looking and working actively to come up with something, but right now there's nothing that is approved for it yet. Just to throw out a couple ideas, there's been several animal models of simvastatin being given um, in a rat model. I list one, but there's a handful that all had the same effects, that it was neuroprotective. When they looked at cognition using some of the maze uh, studies that they use for, for neurologic evaluation of rats, and then when they would sacrifice the animal and look at the biomarkers of brain injury, that it was protective. So I'm looking forward to more research in this area because I do th think that we have a long history of knowing that this is a safe medication. I don't think anyone would be particularly worried about administering it early on if we can show that it has some protective effects in humans. And then another interesting idea, um, matrix metalloproteinases are a large class of, of enzymes that have multiple effects, but one of the things that it's made to do is help to maintain integrities of membranes, in, in particular your blood-brain barrier. If that is affected post-trauma, that typically leads to worsening edema, worsening hemorrhage. So sulfonylureas are known to actually block the effects of matrix metalloproteins. And so uh, Jean-Marc Samard, who actually is neurosurgeon here actually published some early data with it and there's some further data looking into this so look for more studies on this i was involved the games trial which actually just completed was we were using iv sulfonylureas iv gliburide which doesn't actually exist in the u.s but we got it actually through uh, FDA research grant to use it for malignant MCA stroke for the same idea to be reducing edema and, and secondary hemorrhage after massive strokes. So look for us to put out some data on that and then look for some further studies looking into this for, for traumatic brain injury also. So this is discouraging, but there's still some potentially hopeful things coming into the, uh, into the literature, hopefully in the near future. And then just to finish up with serum biomarkers, so glial protein, S100B, glial fibrillatory acidic protein, myelin basic protein, those have been around for some time. And whether in CSF or serum, you can show that actually their levels do correlate with TBI severity. Linda Papa, who's actually an EM brain injury researcher over in Orlando was one of the early ones that put out some pretty good data on this. And it's been, it's been pretty accepted now that that can be used as a marker. Neuron-specific enolase, although we, the name of it sounds like it's specific, well, it's non-specific and actually is released by other, other cells. 
particularly blood cells, RBCs, and platelets after a multi-trauma cannot necessarily be used for, for prognostic grading of, or following of their TBI. And then again, back to this, I will mention, again, this marker. So matrix metalloprotein 9 in particular, post-stroke and post-TBI um, is, is being seen to uh, be a marker, again, of the inflammation, blood-brain barrier, potential breakdown. So we may see more looking into this as a marker, as well as looking into it as a potential spot to do a therapeutic intervention. And then some things just to mention. We uh, presented uh, some data last year at the North American Brain Injury uh, Congress showing that our TBI patients, when we used APRV, were able to get away with a significantly less amount of analgesia and sedation. So our opiate equivalents and our benzodiazepine equivalents, when we looked at them, were drastically lower in our patients on APRV despite actually having better pain scores. And our propofol dosing was zero in APRV as compared to patients on conventional mechanical ventilation. So we're gonna do some second tiers to this looking, because right now that's all we looked at is our pain requirements. What we like to see is obviously is does that correlate with better outcomes? You'd have to imagine that instead of doing quote sedation windows, that you'd be able to monitor them more in their neurologic status when they were less sedated, less amounts of, anal, of uh, analgesia or propofol, and it may correlate with less rates of VAP and so forth. So that, that we'll be further looking into. And then we actually published a case series of th three patients recently that we've seen. So vasopressin is often used for MAP support, right? Someone is actually having their CPPs are slightly low we do know that some brain injury can lead to decreased vasopressin level, so it makes sense to say instead of just isolated levofed, I may have this patient on, on vasopressin and levofed for MAP support while I'm maintaining them during their recovery. So what we found is when that vasopressin was turned off, the patient developed a DI. Now the DI was short-lived in that within about six to 12 hours, the DI had gone away. What that leads me to believe is that we may have actually been inducing, because both, or now all three patients that we have here, three patients, that they were on vasopressin for 48 to 72 hours for the MAP support. We may have actually been suppressing their hypothalamus, and when we abruptly turned off the vasopressin, they actually were lacking the endogenous ability to secrete vasopressin. Typically, patients that develop DI after, after TBI, it isn't so short-lived as such where they have it and then they don't have it. So all three of these patients required one dose of DDAVP, and then afterwards the, their DI had resolved. So what I would say is, is when you have a TBI patient on vasopressin, I would consider weaning it as compared to going from 04 to off or even 04 to 02. I would maybe say go 04, 02, 01, and each, each dec decremental dosing is maybe having them on it for a few hours at a time before abruptly turning it off to give that patient a little bit of homeostatic ability to, to begin secreting vasopressin. Conclusions, I'll let you read those, that way we'll come to questions since we're almost at the mark. All right, I threw a lot of stuff out there, but please let me know, and if it goes over the, over the mark, we can talk afterwards if people have questions or comments. No, I feel like actually if the C collar is applied correctly, that I feel like it helps maintain that person in a neutral position. Um, again, I don't like the extrication collars, but I think a well-fitting Miami J, and, and I say well-fitting, I mean, it has to be actually not just the right height for the person's neck to, to shoulder, chin level, but it also has to be applied where you're not actually squeezing the person's jugulars. But in my experience, now again, someone who can sit upright and maintain a normal tone and maintain their head on their own, I'm not worried about them actually having the need for elevated ICPs because of that. So to me, it's the person that actually is somewhat flaccid where I have clearly seen chin falling forward, ICPs go up, 
flopping to the side. So I like to use it to actually maintain, even if I said I've cleared their C-spine, I will keep them in a Miami J collar during, a, during at least the first few days in the hospital. It doesn't necessarily worry me, and I don't worry necessarily about getting skin breakdown. I think as long as your nursing care is scrupulous, I don't, I don't think you have to worry about getting a skin breakdown on their occiput. So Joe, I, I got three questions. One question in three parts. <laughs> the, the, um, so first of all, you brought up the vasopressin uh, utilization. How long do you anticipate DI to be present following TBI? And so are you just, were you treating what would have been DI and just masking it, and then you take off the vasopressin, and it's about the time when the right. DI would have resolved? So that's a good question. Uh, usually DI from TBI is phasic in that you actually may have for the first actually increased squeeze of the hypothalamus posterior pituitary, you actually may increase the secretion. So you actually, in the early phases, you have, uh, even though the, the, um, the, the synthesis of it may be diminished, the output of it goes up. And so you first may actually have some degree of water retention. When that hormone effect is run out, then you actually drop off and develop DI. And it's usually described as more, more than hours. It's more like days before then you go into the third phase, which is recovery. So it's certainly possible that we were treating, you know, masking a DI, except when we abruptly stopped it, I would have thought that it would have ongone, been going on longer. One of the patients, as I said, you know, got one, one mic, another patient, uh, again, yeah, one single mic, and then after that time period, they didn't require any other dosing. The second thing, so you mentioned the decreased sedation and analgesic requirements with APRV. Makes sense, right? But, um, you know, as we know, you know, as you mentioned from here with abdominal compartment syndrome, leading to basically thoracic compartments that are leading to refractory ICPs. Yeah. So how much does APRV contribute to, with its higher mean airway pressures and uh, contribute to uh, intracranial pressure elevations that are sustained? And how do you, um, what kind of vent mode do you typically prefer from the brain standpoint? Because I mean, yeah, sedation, you know, we, we want to decrease how much meds we give for that. We want to decrease, you know, ventilatory assisted pneumonia. We want to speed up the extubation, time to extubation. But, you know, clearly all this is just a support structure for the brain. Right. Okay, so that was a bunch of questions at once. So there is no ideal mode of ventilation for a TBI patient. There's no ideal mode of ventilation for any patient. If there was, you would turn the ventilator on and there wouldn't be a dial for which mode, right? You would have one mode if it was I ideal. Um, if a patient has actually a lot of thoracic injuries, and so you do have a high mean airway pressure to help, help the, quote, lungs, clearly that can have other effects. You can actually be increasing ICP. That's absolutely true. There are some negative drawbacks to that. And also having very, very high mean airway pressures may increase the amount of venous uh, not, not only venous stasis compression of the IVC leading to more need for fluid resuscitation that then leads to more risk of abdominal compartment syndrome. That is absolutely true, and I think we've identified that that, that can occur. That being said, um, there sometimes is not other good, good management of severe uh, traumatic thoracic injuries with, with multiple pulmonary contusions and need for actually higher weight pressures. I just think sometimes you have to do it and then be on the lookout for some of the complications. Uh, third question. Um, so may I statement slash question, because I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, may I conjecture my ideas about, so a sort of pet peeve of mine when, when taking care of patients, whether post-arrest, stroke, TBI, is um, in, in what I think may be going on, why you see these conflicting data with hypothermia in the setting of TBI, and why I have real problems getting into it, blowing people down on the vent uh, following brain injuries. Uh, I feel like we as intensivists and as physicians overall fail to fully appreciate the significance of the oxygen dissociation curve. 
you know, we, um, we cool people, and so it may help um, decrease metabolism, decrease inflammation, et cetera, um, in the brain. But if we're exposing, if we're minimizing the unloading of that oxygen at the most vulnerable tissue, you know, that may be causing major problems. And that's one thing I, I think in, um, so even in cardiac arrest, oh, uh, you know, I, I see people hypothermic, which is complete, you know, data supporter avoiding, you know, targeted temperature management. But I mean, when, um, but we fail to appreciate many times that oxygen dissociation curve and it's shifting to the left during both uh, hypothermia and alkalemia. And I see people, you know, especially when we, somebody's 747 or whatever, um, I mean, I would argue that they maybe should be either normal or um, a little acidemic um, to facilitate O2 unloading at those moments. I totally agree. And the nice part of truly multimodality monitoring is if you have a patient who has an ICP monitor in, and so you know that their ICPs are acceptable, and you also have some other management or measurement of their cerebral oxygenation, so a Lycox, Oregon microdialysis catheter, and their oxygen, their brain oxygenation, as you think, is at risk, but their ICP is acceptable. I absolutely agree with actually allowing that person to, ha to develop a respiratory acidosis because you know that that will cause in, in, increased cerebral vasodilation. So what you'll see is that as you increase blood flow to the brain, if their ICPs are allowable, their ICP will still stay normal, but their oxygen delivery, meaning their PbO2, will go up, where their jugular venous saturation will, will go up, where their lactate pyruvate ratio will go down. So uh, allowing the person to actually develop some degree of of acidosis is helpful for vasodilation and oxygen unloading. It is a adaptation. When we exercise, our temperature goes up somewhat and actually we develop acidosis, which helps dilate our muscle beds to send blood flow to our, to our muscles and tissues and unload oxygen. And yeah. Which also makes it interesting with kids, particularly if little kids, I mean, and I guess it would have to deal with newborns and you know, but where they have the different type of hemoglobin that, you know, early on, and so how much, what fat, how does that factor in that? That's a very small population, yeah. but it'd be interesting. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you.